Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. One of the most compelling recent books on climate change is Nathaniel Rich's Losing Earth, which recounts the decade of the 1980s when the concept of global warming first appeared in the national conscience. A key figure in that book is today's guest. Rafe Pomerantz is a former Washington lobbyist with Friends of the Earth, who during the 1980s played a central role in bringing climate science and the impacts of global warming to the attention of Congress and the nation. As Losing Earth recounts, there was bipartisan agreement on the need for climate action in the early 1980s. But by the end of the decade, that unity began to fall apart as deliberate misinformation campaigns distorted public understanding of climate science and as pressure from the fossil fuel industry drove many politicians to reject policies to reduce greenhouse emissions. On today's podcast, Rafe will take a look at where four decades of climate denialism has left us and at the options that remain to minimize climate impacts. Rafe will also explain his current work to turn climate change into a pivotal electoral issue, notably in Florida, a state that has emerged as a bellwether in U.S. climate politics. Rafe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. As recounted in Losing Earth, you became aware of climate change through a chance reading of an obscure environmental assessment back in 1979. That was an assessment from the government. Uh, Can you briefly recount that event and the national attitude toward climate change in the 1980s? Sure. Uh, I was working, I encountered the uh, indicator, or rather the language on climate change in a report on the environmental impacts of coal produced by an EPA lab. I had been working on the Clean Air Act amendments for several years that were passed in 1977. One of the unresolved issues in that debate was acid rain. I was doing follow-up research on acid rain, And when reading this report, encountered a paragraph on the environmental effects of coal use, one of which was warming the earth. I was astounded, I have to say, I remember very well, turned the report over to a colleague to have a look, and she found uh, a study reported in the Rocky Mountain News by Gordon McDonald, a geophysicist at the MITRE Corporation at that time. And uh, I worked with him, went out to see him, spent a couple of hours. I said, if I set up the briefings, will you do them? And we spent many years together trying to successfully, ultimately, uh, awaken the U.S. government, Congress, media to the issue with the help of lots of people. I mean, a lot of people became involved. So what happened during the 1980s? That was really the focus of your work. Yeah, well, it was the focus of Nathaniel's book. I've now spent four decades working on the climate change problem. The first decade is the one Nathaniel wrote about. Uh, We, at the time that I read this report, uh, and then I went around talking to people, nobody knew anything about it. People hadn't heard of global warming, climate change, the greenhouse effect. It was essentially at zero consciousness There were, of course, a number of scientists who were working on it, but the issue had no prominence and no visibility. So uh, the way I characterize it is we went from no awareness to global awareness. Now, today, there's massive global awareness. Uh, At that time, in 10 years, governments, for a variety of reasons and through a variety of mechanisms, became aware of it, but we started uh, at zero. So in the, in the time since the 80s, um, you've 
obviously been very active. You worked in President Clinton's State Department That's right. on environmental and climate issues. You worked with the World Resources Institute. Right. Uh, and more recently, you are now working on uh, raising awareness of the impact of climate change on the Arctic as the chairman of Arctic 21. Tell right. us about that work. Sure. Well, uh, what's happened in the last 30 years is that uh, a huge amount of data has come along demonstrating that the Arctic is what I would call unraveling. And uh, about six years ago, uh, I I realized that uh, what was coming upon us was that the Obama administration was going to chair the Arctic Council, which is the eight Arctic governments that work on a variety of issues together. And the data by this point, like 2012, had become overwhelming. That was 2012 was the lowest sea level sea ice record, sea ice extent record on in history, and a dramatic event to scientists and, and everybody else who looked at it. And so it seemed obvious as a former State Department person that the State Department, which leads our work in the Arctic Council, was going to need an agenda. I mean, what was the Obama administration and John Kerry, who was the Secretary of State, what was going to be their focus? What were they going to do? And it seemed to me that they could not ignore the climate issue. Anyway, a group of us, different organizations and individuals, got together and made a proposal to the State Department that they consider focusing the U.S. chairmanship on climate change. And I don't, that was not a hard sell. They understood the centrality of this and uh, decided to do it. And that was the key event because it legitimized a much greater focus on Arctic conditions. And just to say one more word about that, President Obama had his own, essentially, he led a conference of foreign ministers and others from the Arctic countries and others in Anchorage. Uh sort of in the last year, I think, of his administration, a year and a half. And he went to Alaska and the Arctic, first president really to do that, in order to draw attention to the issue. And uh, since then, we managed, the whole idea has been to communicate the unraveling of the Arctic. And when you do that, you focus on the fate of Greenland, which has 25 feet of sea level rise, uh, packed into its ice sheet Which is potential. essentially the northern equi- equivalent of Antarctica. That's right. That's right. It's a lot smaller than Antarctica, or should I say Antarctica is a lot bigger than Greenland. Greenland's big, but Antarctica is gigantic in terms of potential sea level rise and the amount of ice mass. You look at sea ice extent, which I ma- ma- uh, mentioned. Uh, sea ice is important because it reflects sunlight that strikes the surface of the earth back to space, whereas a black ocean absorbs that sunlight and heats up. With sea ice, you reflect it back to space, and that keeps the earth cool. And we're losing that cooling mechanism, and it's significant. So you get a vicious vicious cycle. Yeah, what's called a positive feedback. Permafrost is now thawing. Permafrost uh, covers a vast amount of the northern hemisphere or the high-latitude northern hemisphere, Russia, Canada, Alaska. Permafrost contains double the carbon content of the atmosphere in the frozen vegetation of which it's composed. That vegetation is thawing. As it thaws, microbes 
wake up, get active, and start. Wait, so you're saying that there's double the amount of carbon locked up in the frozen permafrost That's than there right. is in the whole atmosphere. That's right. So permafrost is a potentially, again, a very large uh, feedback to the global system. In other words, once it thaws enough and it's on the edge there, it will produce a lot of additional CO2 emissions and methane emissions, both greenhouse gases, to the atmosphere. The methane piece of this could come very quickly. In fact, the whole permafrost uh, feedback could happen a lot faster than people think. That's the latest sort of science uh, as we learn more details or as the scientists discover more details. So uh, we're looking at the Arctic the Arctic's importance to the global climate system is wrapped up in sea level rise, in carbon sequestration and permafrost, and in reflecting light back to space, which keeps the planet cool, or is an important part of keeping it cool. So uh, there are other important aspects of it, like... So let me sorry. ask you about the, the policy aspect yeah. of that. So, so when you're looking at policies... Yes because that's ultimately yes. where you're going with. Right. How is his Arctic climate policy, is it, is it distinct from other types of climate policy? Well, yes and no. Mostly no, ultimately no, because in order to control the fate of the Arctic, you have to control the global atmosphere. So you're so using this a, a, as to show how, how critical the situation right. is. That's right. They, now, there may be ways to, we don't know if there's sort of geoengineering uh, initiatives that could cool the Arctic and the Arctic only. I doubt that. I think most of what's known is you have to cool the global atmosphere off. Of the, of the, you have to cool the planet to slow down Arctic melting as well as cool the planet overall. So this, this year, actually, in Chile, where the conference of the parties will be of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, there's an annual meeting of all the governments. The Chileans are going to make a, a focus of what's happening to the cryosphere, the cryosphere being all ice systems on Earth, Antarctica, the Arctic, and the mid-latitude glaciers like in the Himalayas or the Andes. And the Chileans have, being at the tip of South America, southern latitude, they have a lot of glaciers, and they're right next to, at least as close as you can get to Antarctica. So we expect a lot of attention to these issues. And the important thing here is that the and, and just in a few days from now, the UN will release the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, will release a new study of the impacts of climate change on oceans and cryosphere. That will come up out on September 25th. We expect that to generate a lot of publicity, but it will draw attention to the seriousness of what's being observed and what's projected. Very serious. And that will then flow into this COP, Conference of the Parties, in Chile, so that the fate of the Arctic becomes a driver of urgency and ambition in the negotiations. That's what we see. Now, how much of it happens now versus a year from now, I don't know. But it's building. It's building. So that's a, a, a huge issue. Yes. The, the poles, the Arctic, the Antarctic. Let, let's take this to a little bit more of a, a, a domestic look at what's going on at this point. I want to talk about the state of Florida yes. specifically, okay? Yes. Um, you're involved with an organization in Florida called Rethink Energy that promotes clean energy and climate action in the state. Mm-hmm. And Florida is is really interesting, and I would say it's 
a somewhat confusing state uh, when it comes to climate politics. On one side, Floridians are acutely living the impacts of uh, rising sea levels, most dramatically in Miami. And with every recent hurricane, you get the sense that the state just dodged another bullet. There's a recent uh, poll from Quinnipiac that found that 70 72% of Floridians are very or somewhat concerned about climate change. Yet the state's senior senator, Marco Rubio, has labeled as leftists and radicals, those who'd call climate change a crisis. And Rick Scott, who's Florida's other senator and until recently was the state's governor, banned state environmental regulators from using the terms global warming and climate change during his term. So given all of this, and given your experience in the state, what is the political landscape on climate in Florida right now? Uh, it's a very important question. I would say the state or the population, the media there is moving very rapidly on this. Maybe there are a lot of examples of that. I'll give you one. The, the major, the three largest newspapers in South Florida, Miami Herald, Palm Beach Post, Orlando Sun Sentinel, have formed a collaborative. It's called an editorial collaborative. It's called Invading Seas. Read that. It's great stuff. Yeah. Well, they they publish op-eds, editorials, and opinion pieces on the, on, on the fate of Florida based on a focus on sea level rise. And then the papers pick up many of these pieces and run them in their own uh, pages. But that's an indicator. Now, they, they, when they announced this collaborative, they said that sea level rise was the most important issue facing Florida in the 21st century. Now... I've been working in Florida for nine years on the, the sort of effort to raise the visibility of the sea level rise issue. And there's been an enormous amount of uh, progress in particularly in local governments, in the media and among citizens on raising, you know, paying attention, writing about it, forums, uh, activism, and the last people to figure this out still are the state's Republican leaders. I mean, particularly Rick Scott. I put him number one. I mean, as eight years as governor, he spent in a denialist stance on a problem that is exist as an existential threat to the state. And then he wins uh, a Senate seat very narrowly against Bill Nelson, who was had become an advocate for dealing with the issue, which was a sort of a tragic race in a certain way, um, my, in my book. Now, these, another area of progress has been in local governments that are forming these regional organizations to deal with impacts. They are facing actual visual or physical impacts of sea level rise. And the first one that was established was in the four counties in southeast Florida, Palm Beach, uh, Broward, Miami-Dade, and Monroe, which are the keys. Now there's one in Tampa. I think there's one in central Florida dealing with impacts there in Orlando. So, and maybe up north in Jacksonville. So you have the local governments moving. The governor, who was a Trump Republican when he was elected, sort of reversed himself on DeSantis. climate change. DeSantis. And has said it's real. Sea level rise is real. He's appointed supposedly a decent person, a science advisor and an impacts coordinator. We'll see. 
what he how hard, how far out he's, he he gets. But it's an indicator. Rubio said, "Oh, we can deal with the impacts. Don't bother with trying to solve the problem. Just adapt," which is ridiculous. But it's a step away from denialism. Now. Let me just say one other thing about this in Florida. When the Dem- remember the first Democratic debate down there a few weeks ago, when the twenty two nights of debate, uh, the citizen groups ran a big campaign around the climate issue in Florida in the lead up to that debate because it was a perfect hook for uh, getting attention to how climate affects Florida politics, what the impacts of climate change are in Florida, and the role of leadership. Now, just to say a word about impacts, we were involved in doing a pretty sophisticated fact sheet, in this case, a very impactful one, on the impacts and costs. Impacts, number one, sea level rise. Number two, intensifying hurricanes. You said Florida dodged a bullet. That's right. But look what happened in the Bahamas. That was a Category 5 stalled hurricane. There's 70,000 refugees there, 90 miles from the state. That could just have easily been... You know, Palm Beach, coral bleaching, many of the corals in Florida are now dead. We're now just learned that there's a NOAA forecast of uh, a major bleaching event in the Caribbean, which I assume means the Florida's uh, ocean waters as well this year. And there's one, this, and there's a major bleaching event actually underway now in Hawaii. That bleaching means the ocean is too hot for coral to survive. If you have a bleaching event that goes on for 30 days, coral die. We're losing losing most of the reefs in the world now because the sea surface temperature is too high. And the sea surface temperature also drives the intensity of hurricanes. That was a long answer, but... Well, let let me take it one step oh, further. Wait, oh, go ahead. Wait, go ahead. wait, mm-hmm. wait. So the question is, the, my most grandio- the most grandiose version of this is, does sea level rise decide the 2020 election? Yeah, that's what's going Because if you switched, if 50,000 people shift because of this, you know, you could the, the Democrats could win Florida. And getting rid of Trump, in my opinion, is the single most important thing we can do for climate policy. So... Uh, that's the pivotal question, and uh, we'll see how that goes. You have seen dynamics around climate thinking, climate politics for quite some time. You've been obviously very intimately involved. You know, in your view, um, what do you think it's going to take to get the country broadly, politically behind strong climate action? Do we need crises, uh, what do we need? Well, that's probably the most important question, and I think we are tied. Our hands are tied because of Congress as a country. And the reason our hands are tied is because the Republican Party has adopted a essentially a denialist stance, although that's changing. Which goes back to the 80s and losing Yeah, Earth. well, right. So... Now, what's behind the denialist stance? Well, one was this sort of the science of doubt, which was planted by ExxonMobil and others back then to seed doubt so that no action was taken. And that was a very successful campaign on their part. And we're living with it today. You know, that set our country back a long way and continues to do so. So that became kind of part of the Republican ideology. But that's backed by... 
Dark money? Many senators will tell you Republicans, including Republicans themselves, that they can't move because dark money finances their campaign. Tell and us a little bit more well, specifically what, that what means is dark is money. Companies and individuals who have a stake in uh, the profits of oil, coal, and gas production uh, or who are ideologically opposed to government intervention, what have you. Uh, the third is that this has become an issue in the polarized version of the Republican Party in which moderates are afraid to step out because they'll get, quote, primaried if they step out too far. And I think climate change has been one of those issues. Now, more f fundamental in a certain way is having policies that uh, confront the transitional nature of this because we have to essentially either shut down or transform the fossil fuel production industry. You have to decarbonize the global economy. And that either means you, you use other sources of energy or you sequester the carbon as it's produced in uh, the use of, say, coal. And there's a lot of work going on. It's known as carbon sequestration. So there is an option in the world of fossil fuels, but we need the technology. We need it at a cost. You know, uh, or and or we need, you know, vast amount of renewables. We have to continue to improve the safety of nuclear power. We it's all hands on deck here. We're in sufficient amount of trouble that all carbon free energy is on the table to be used. Now, what you like to do is use the cheapest do it the most efficiently. That's why so many economists favor carbon taxes as the most efficient way to drive innovation and substitution. You know, going back to the history of this for just a moment. Yeah. So we talk about dark money, talk yeah. about this history of right. oil companies, fossil right. fuel companies, Exxon by name right. and others, funding these efforts to, right. to create doubt. confusion yeah. and doubt yeah. Yeah. around the validity of... of, of climate science. Um, today, we see something of a shift from that same industry. Um, and oil companies have come out in yep. favor of carbon tax that gives them uh, a, a secure view of the future, right. stability going forward, which is helpful to their business. But I want to ask you this. Do you believe that the oil companies given your experience yeah. and what you see the changes being now, do you believe that oil companies, fossil fuel companies, can actually be partners in change and in addressing this issue as they're starting to frame themselves as? Yeah. Well, I, 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 I do believe that. Uh, I, a key to, to solving this problem is new technology, innovation, low-cost substitutes for all energy technologies that we use today. Now, one of those is solar and wind that are cheap now and available, but we need more at all levels of uh, the energy system. And the oil industry, given enough incentives by politicians, could move to bring online an array of new technologies. You know, they do a lot of advertising that they're doing this. We'll see. So, yes, they given that there's, there's both a market shift going on now, sort of a preference for non-carbon producing energy, that's a problem for conventional producers. And two, 
This crisis is now visible. And it's only going to get more visible. And when that happens, the political reaction will only get more extreme, such that the industry, one way or another, is going to have to change its ways. And you could kind of see that in the auto industry where the electrification is underway. I think they get it more. So, uh, you know, next week, isn't it next Friday, there's a strike? Young people are going to strike across the – it's a global strike on climate change. Well, that's a precursor. What you're going to see is future generations, those who are represented in our population today, both themselves and their own future with, their ch with children and grandchildren, are going to become increasingly vocal as this – all this shows up. Well, you know, taking that a step further yeah. – uh, we have had a lot of extreme weather events yeah. in the last year. We've had yeah. fires. We've had flooding in the Midwest. Right. We've had the whole thing. Do you notice a shift towards recognizing climate change in what we'll call the, the red states, the conservative portions of this country? Yeah. Not just amongst the younger generation, but, you know, does it become at some point impossible to deny? And, well, have you seen that? Uh, well, I... I think I've seen it in the polling data. Uh, there are examples of it, but I'm not uh, on top of movement in the various uh, red states. But as, as these events take place, it raises the issue for the population, and people tend to say, yes, things are changing. You mentioned innovation a couple of yeah. minutes ago, that we need innovation. Right. To, to address the, the, the climate problem, innovation in the energy industry. Now, innovation is interesting because it's become kind of a, a buzzword, particularly right. amongst conservatives yeah. uh, within the last, I don't know, year or so. Yeah. Innovation is great when it solves problems and gets us to solve problems, but it also can be kind of a way to uh, allow us to continue to use unabated fossil fuels because if we can clean those fossil fuels up, I mean, is, is innovation a, uh, a, a euphemism for doing nothing? Well, perhaps for some people it is. Uh, it may be simply a talking point. Like you say, you know, the uh, denialists continue to change their talking points to, have, to make them a bit more realistic in the context of what scientists are saying. But innovation has been and remains a pillar of the response. So you can either use it, as, I suppose some people use it as a, a talking point to, to do nothing. I happen to think it's something that people who want to, are trying to do something about this ought to embrace as a component of policy. And because it's essential to bring on low-cost substitutes. That's the whole game. And... For example, we could, as a country, make an agency called ARPA-E, the Advanced Research Projects Administration Energy, which is a high-risk R&D effort in the federal government. We could make it the same size as the equivalent agency in the Pentagon. I mean, one's like $300 million a year. The other's $5 billion. Well, one's supposed to be taking care of planet Earth. I'm not saying the Pentagon is unimportant. But what are we doing being cheap? with the planet Earth. You know what I mean? This is it. More broadly, 
We've talked about the need for, for action. Right. Where are we at this point in time in terms of the actions that are needed to address climate change to keep them below two degrees? What are the scientific uh, boundaries and, and, and limitations that we face at this point? The odds of staying below two degrees are very low. I mean, it's theoretically possible if there was an immediate transformation and global, essentially, elimination of carbon emissions on a very short time scale. So I think the chances of that are quite low, although that's an appropriate goal. Again, it depends on the pol political support and the costs of making the transition. What innovation do we need to make this happen? Well, you need innovation in energy, in the electricity system for storage of renewable electrons, so to speak. Uh, we need... a um, uh, innovation in transportation in a big hurry to get out of the internal combustion engine and into more and more electric systems. We need innovation in the aircraft industry. We're still flying around with fossil fuels, vast increase in air traffic, shipping, all of it. All those systems need new technologies that are basically carbon-free. We need technology to sequester carbon, or we need the policies in soils and forests. We need to know whether we can pull carbon out of the atmosphere mechanically. That's a reach right now, but a lot of people are working on it. We need to know whether we have um, a geoengineering intervention like putting particles in the stratosphere as a big volcano does to cool the planet. We have no federal research program in that area because we're headed, the odds are we're headed past two degrees globally. And two degrees globally means, for example, five degrees in the Arctic. Just to make one other comparison here, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere now is equivalent to what existed three million years ago in what's called the Pliocene period, when sea levels were many meters higher because the amount of warming went on for a long time and it melted the ice sheets and so on. So... Uh, we're, what we have to recognize is what we're, the carbon dioxide buildup in the atmosphere is unprecedented, both in human and geologic history. So this is not a good place for we homo sapiens to be. We're in charge of the planet, and we better act like it responsibly. Let me take a jump back. Yeah. I want to ask you a question that I forgot to ask earlier. Oh, please. Okay. This relates to um, some of that dark money that mm. we were talking about before. Yeah. And it's interesting. Um, there's been a lot in the press over the last few years about the involvement, again, of the oil companies, right. of the Koch brothers funding a lot of right. these organizations, everything post-Citizens United, right. which allowed all these, these groups to get unlimited funding basically to support or destroy candidates at will. Um, the question is, is this. When you see states like Florida where climate change is really becoming a major issue, are we going to continue to see the strong opposition from these groups, such as the Koch brothers that fund a lot of these, these efforts, working? Or is that kind of being pushed in the background? Is it not such a clear fight for them anymore? Well, I assume we'll see in the Trump campaign a lot of that kind of money in Florida. That's an assumption of mine. Uh, There'll be a lot of money on the other side as well. So I 
this is sort of a global view represented by those interests is a real problem for the United States. Our political system is not working because of the amount of money that flows from special interests to uh, campaigns. Now, some of this is ideology. You know, it's not like somebody's going to make a lot of money. They're just a, they think this is a gambit to impose global governance or something. Whatever. Some of it's self-interest. Some of it's just, I don't know, party politics. So I, I think the point at which it switches is when the public essentially says to the Republican Party, enough, you've got to move. And if, like in Florida, you will find politicians down there who have moved. Uh, this guy from uh, Naples, Francis Rooney, he's a Republican. He is a carbon tax advocate. Very out front, says this is real. Just had a big op-ed piece in Politico. He's become a real leader. That's going to make it harder for people, other Republicans in Florida, to remain denialists. Now, the question is, what do the voters do? And as the voters pick up that this is a property values issue, people are not going to be wanting to buy homes that people want to sell quite with such enthusiasm. And when the property values thing or impact hits, that could be telling. So uh, the, my, my point, I'm, I'm sort of waiting for the moment when this happens. Now, maybe it'll never happen. I, I can't tell you. But, you know, another place where this is a possibility is Arizona, another purple state. You know, we're talking about huge heat increases in the hottest place in the country, Phoenix, water shortages, fires, you know, uh, quite a transformation of what's already a hot place. Well, it's Purple State. What happens? You know, we'll see. Final question for you. What works and doesn't work per your experience in convincing people of the reality of climate change and the need to address it? Well, I would say two things. One is I've been involved in my four decades on this. I've never, I've always advocated, I should say, or always been convinced that putting the science out there is the most useful thing to do. Peer-reviewed, honest assessments of what's happening and going to happen. Now, some people say that's not enough. It clearly isn't enough, but it's the central way you move this forward, and you just keep hammering that, whatever the science brings forth. The second thing that I am an advocate of is this impact strategy, where you the impacts in a local area become the way in which you argue the case. They are the political platform for arguing the case. And these two examples we've talked about here are Florida and Arizona. Now, every place will experience different impacts. And so you have to design a campaign based around what the models show will, ha will happen or is already happening. So those are two strategies. You keep it to science. You keep the impacts. And third, I think, is this generational question that's now emerged. That's huge because, you know, I like, I've sort of gotten to say, you know, how will, why will Donald Trump be hated by 50 billion people? It's because five generations from now, they'll be looking back on this moment as a time when we blew it. And so with his sort of, he's not the only one who's been a denialist, but he happens to be in office when the whole thing has emerged and been very loud about it. So 
But I think that the generational question will be a profound mover. Rafe, thanks for talking. Pleasure. Today's guest has been Rafe Pomerantz, chairman of Arctic 21. Thanks for listening to today's podcast, which kicks off the fourth season of Energy Policy Now from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. Check out the Climate Center's website for a wealth of energy policy resources, including blog posts, policy digests, in-depth reports, and of course, three years worth of archives of this podcast. Our web address is climateenergy.upenn.edu, and our Twitter feed is at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. Thank you.